Finance and Leadership, FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. I am so pleased to announce that for this episode, I have a co-host. Elaine Carey is a managing director at FTI Consulting, and she co-leads FTI's cannabis practice. Today's guest is David Feldman. David is a lawyer, advisor, and entrepreneur. He is the author of four books on finance and entrepreneurship and is known as one of the leading cannabis finance attorneys in the U.S., having served most recently as co-lead of the 60 law firm Cannabis Practice Group for an Amlaw 100 law firm. So I would like to welcome my co-host for this episode, Elaine Carey and David Feldman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, David, let's start from the beginning. What caused you to get into law practice? Tell us a little bit about your origin story. Well, my Jewish parents said as I was heading to college, you can do whatever you want with your life and your career, but when you're done with your education, you need to have a profession. And that meant medicine, law, accounting, engineering. Wharton grad with a marketing major didn't do it. So that's how I ended up in law school, mainly because even though my father was a doctor, you know, me and blood don't do very well together. And I tried accounting, took an accounting course. I was like, you know, I'm good at math, but I don't like this. No offense. Don't really want to be doing that. That's why we need people like you. You know, engineering was definitely not for me. And I had a number of family members who were successful attorneys. Uh, My uncle had built what's now the largest law firm on Long Island. So that's the direction I went. But I really was always more interested in kind of entrepreneurship and building something on my own. Later, realized that I could do that with a law practice and ultimately later with a consulting business as well. So how did you start working as a cannabis finance attorney? You've been doing it for such a long time. How did that come about? Yeah, I started doing that around 2013. So that's nine years ago, which is like 50 cannabis years, as we like to refer to them. I became fairly well known in alternatives to traditional IPOs, such as reverse mergers and what they call direct listings, where you combine with an already existing public vehicle or do a filing on your own without an IPO. Wrote several books on that. And the first cannabis companies that went public around 2013 and 14 did so through these reverse mergers. And so I inherited a few of those started seeing the opportunities, started going to conferences, getting some speaking opportunities. And then a few years later, joined the global law firm of Dwayne Morris, where I was for about five years. And they had just decided when I joined them in 2015 to be the first top 100 law firm to openly enter the cannabis space as attorneys. And they asked if I would help them build that. And I said, absolutely. And so we built it to a pretty substantial practice. I was co-lead of what became a 60 lawyer group and only left two years ago because they were raising my hourly rate to a very, very high level, which works for certain clients. But for me and my small and mid-sized clients, was becoming more and more of a problem. And I really did want to put more of my kind of business education to work and do more on the kind of strategic advisory and consulting side. So that's why I launched Skip Intro Advisors and the affiliated law firm Feldman Legal Advisors over the last few years. Excellent. So, David, Elaine and I, when we have conversations, we often talk about the fact that we believe that there are many lenders out there that have exposure to the cannabis industry, but may not know it. Vincent is estimated that around 700 banks were taking cannabis money, but we think that there's a lot more. 
What's your perspective? There are certainly a lot more. For example, there was a survey in Massachusetts just a couple of years ago, and they asked cannabis operators, do you have banks? At the time, this is about three years ago now, about a third of them said, yes, we work with banks. And they said, well, which banks? And they named four major money center banks whose names you know very, very well. And I was very surprised to see this. And so I called a friend of mine at one of these banks and I said, wow, this is great. I hear you guys are doing this. We, maybe we can find ways to work together. And he wrote back, hold on. And about an hour later, he wrote back, we're not doing this. And I said, no, no, no. There was a guy in Massachusetts who says they use you. He goes, we're not doing this. Even when they're doing it, they're not admitting it. Or as you say, they may not even know it. If they don't ask the question, and do you think a bank asks every single person who comes in to open a new account, are you doing anything federally illegal in your business? If there isn't some sort of reason to ask the question, like if it says Canna Flower Inc., you know, then maybe they ask the question. But if it's just, you know, our company, for example, Skip Intro Advisors, I opened my bank account and they said, what do you do? I said, business consulting. They said, cool, here's your bank account. Obviously, I'm not, as we say, plant touching, which is really what the banks are most concerned about under these FinCEN guidelines that have come out in 2014. But there's no question that the banks are more in it than they realize, and the ones that are in it have to do compliance and monitoring and some other things. And there's not that much lending, though, from banks going on to these companies that I'm aware of. There is a lot of debt in cannabis companies, but almost all of it is coming from family offices and hedge funds and special funds that are set up for debt. So, David, let me ask you a question, sort of test what I tell clients, because I look at the cannabis industry, deal with them on compliance issues and anti-money laundering in particular. Do you advise clients when they're first getting into it to be straightforward with their banks? Because I know some people have omitted the facts and the details of their business, and then sometimes some months later, they wake up and their bank accounts were frozen. Well, I think a lot of it depends on whether they are what we call plant touching or not. And as I say, these guidelines that the Treasury put out in 2014 that apparently are still technically in force suggest that if you are a marijuana-related business, then there's a heightened scrutiny and all this other stuff. The practitioners generally have agreed that that does not include companies that supply products or services to those who you know, grow and sell cannabis, because otherwise every giant law firm, every giant accounting firm, you guys, all of us would have our banks have to file suspicious activity reports, do due diligence and monitoring on us, and that's just not realistic or practical. And I advise several of financial institutions, not necessarily banks, but others like broker-dealers and securities transfer agents, they're also subject to these guidelines. And they agree that we need to distinguish between the two. So if it's a client that is touching the plant, yes, I, I think it's appropriate and correct to advise your bank what you do. If you do not, I don't think so. I, th I think if they ask the question, you absolutely answer it honestly. But I don't think you need to offer that up if you are simply providing products or services to growers and sellers of cannabis. Excellent. And then, I mean, as we talk about just legalization overall, I mean, we keep seeing the legalization trend continuing, especially in the East Coast. What are your thoughts? And if you look into your crystal ball, when will federal legalization happen? Well, the most important thing about predicting that is don't listen to me. For the last nine years that I've been doing this, I've been telling people it's going to be five years or less. So you don't want to listen to me. That said, I think it's safe to say we're closer than we've ever been uh, and that we move closer, not further away. As each year passes, the fact that the Moore Act has passed the House now twice, the fact that Chuck Schumer wants to try to do something and has actually drafted a bill is meaningful. 
if for no other reason, then it draws attention to the issue in the public to talk about it. It helps the state legalization efforts as well. If we feel that federal legalization is essentially inevitable, which is what I think most people believe is the case. You're talking about job creation, taxes, medicine, helping get people off opioids and so on. 70% of Americans now favor federal legalization, and that includes a majority of Republicans in almost every recent poll. I think it's going to take until more than half the states legalize adult use, which we still may be a few years away from. And there is still this stigma that some people can't seem to get past uh, the way we were kind of brainwashed for the last hundred years by so many that wanted things a different way. It's not easy to undo that so easily. But little by little, it is happening. And, and as they see that the world doesn't end in states where it has been legalized, and in fact, we're seeing lower rates of teen use, no real increase in driving issues, a reduction in opioid use in these states that have legalized, not to mention hundreds of millions in taxes, incredible job creation. I think the world is starting to get it, even those who, who were against it in the past. So are you thinking that then the Safe Banking Act, do you think it'll happen uh, maybe this year or next year? What are you thinking from that perspective? Well, most people think that's more likely than full legalization, and I think it's safe to say that. There is more Republican support for that because what's good for banks is good for Republicans. There's been some Democratic backlash. For example, Cory Booker has said that he's against it because he feels it would lie in the pockets of banks, and I respectfully disagree and feel, well, no way, this is going to help small operators of cannabis companies because to get a bank account now, if they're lucky enough to get one, in exchange for the hassle that the banks have to go through, they have been charging hefty fees to these companies, five, six, $7,000 a month just to open a checking account. And safe banking would essentially eliminate those costs for these small companies. But the political will to get it done is still a challenge, mostly on the Senate side, is my impression, especially if you're going to have some Democrats opposed to it. It's sort of like the argument that some people said, well, cannabis is schedule one. Instead of descheduling completely, what if we reschedule schedule two or three? And generally, people in the industry oppose that because they feel if we go here, it'll just get stuck and we'll never go down here. You'll lose momentum and all that. And some feel if you go, say, banking, it will much further delay full legalization. I don't think I agree with that. I think safe banking, besides opening up banking and lending, a lot of other people who have been on the fence, for example, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange that have still not listed plant-touching companies, I think if safe banking passed, that would be enough to really make that very important and dramatic change. More institutional investors might look at the space and investing in the space. If we see safe banking, I think it would be a positive step. And I'm hopeful that it can happen in the next year or two. So let's pull that thread a little bit, especially as you talk about institutional investors, because I, I also think about the credibility of the industry, the staying power of the industry. So talk to me a little bit more about that and what, and what you're seeing in that area. You raised the thing that I've been on a soapbox on for a while, which is that legalization is one part of sort of institutional acceptance of this industry. But we need more than that. There is a lot of tumult 
in the industry in terms of folks who are a bit shady and sleazy. That's number one. Number two is we don't have a clear industry consensus on how to do the right amount of testing, how to make sure that our dispensaries and grows operate properly with avoidance of pesticides and things like that. How do we do proper corporate governance in these companies, which a lot of them do not? These are things that are basic to most other industries that this space that was built by a group that I call the Cannabis Cowboys, who kind of came in and to their credit took all the risk early on in building these initial big sort of multi-state operators. But they weren't really the type of people who should be running those businesses. And it took them, in some cases, in my view, longer than it should have for them to move to the side and let more professional management run these companies for whatever reason that that occurred. And so to get to that point, we need to do all of that cleanup. And what we find is that the press that covers cannabis is kind of pro the industry, and they tend not to write these very negative, tough journalism kind of stories, with a few exceptions. One example is daily feed that we get, and there's one just on cannabis, and every single day, it's lawsuit, 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 lawsuit. There is a lot of litigation going on. There's a lot of allegations of fraud. There's a lot of people claiming breaches of contracts, and most of that is not covered extensively. And if we're going to clean it up, we need to clean it up, and we need to acknowledge that this is going on and work hard to kind of rid the industry of some of these sketchy players. I would, wouldn't disagree with you at all on any of that. My question to you, though, is I've heard a lot of the MSOs say they would prefer to do the cleaning up and set the standards before they have to submit to whether it be the FDA or whatever bodies do it because they don't understand it well enough. Do you think that's a valid reason to put forward? I mean, it's always better if the industry can clean up its own act, and I would hope that they can. So far, they have not really shown a strong ability or desire to practice what they're preaching, frankly. I hope that would change, and I hope you're right. I am a free trader. I don't think the government should regulate any more than absolutely necessary. Just look at what we've created, 38 individual little regulatory economies in each state that legalize them. They're all different, you know, depending on how many licenses they issued and it affects prices, it affects everything. And it's not the natural market forces. You know, look at what happened in New York where they suddenly said, we're going to let hemp producers get a jump start on adult use by producing early. And suddenly the hemp producers value their business went like this just because a regulation changed. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's actually a smart thing that they did. But when so much is controlled by the legislators and the politicians, that always worries me. So I agree with you. It would be better if the industry could clean up its own act. But so far, I haven't felt like there's this great mission. You don't hear people really talking about it, except when people like me needle them and raise it. But I think it's going to be important to institutional acceptance. I definitely follow the news items that come out of Law 360, and, and it is interesting that they do have uh, a news feed that's dedicated to just the cannabis industry. I was curious if there were any specific recent developments that you're following closely, or legal actions, or enforcements that, that you're following closely that our listeners should keep an eye on. I'm kind of keeping an eye on the FDA and what they're doing with, with CBD and choosing to come after certain people who are making claims and this and that. Delta 8 is an interesting conundrum right now that every state is grappling with whether to regulate it or declare it illegal. 
And I think there is the beginning of a global market developing that I'm also keeping an eye on and how it's going to work first with hemp and CBD and then eventually with cannabis as well. Another interesting development I've seen is states starting to talk about kind of multi-state commerce, even though it's still federally illegal, where certain states in a region are saying, we're going to have an agreement with each other. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but you know, New York started having a little conversation about it. California's having a little conversation about it. Uh, it could be interesting to see that if that develops into something. Have you seen any actions by U.S. Treasury FinCEN against cannabis companies or suppliers, et cetera, that you think would have caused the financial institution industry writ large to back off more, or has it actually maybe assuaged their fears? Uh, no, I have not, to answer your question. I don't think they really are considering this any sort of enforcement priority. But what happened was in the early years after these guidelines came out, there was this steady increase of banks, and then it kind of leveled off, and now it's gone down a little bit. I think it's hit whoever it's going to hit, and most of the banks that are in it are very small banks, regional banks, credit unions. I'm not aware of any major money center banks that are willing to admit they're in it, although for the first time in the last six months or so, you're seeing some banks actually actively promoting their cannabis activities, which is kind of interesting in a few states. It's really much easier now to find banking. It's really not much of an issue. The question is, do you want to pay the fees to the bank to do it and go through the review and due diligence and monitoring that they have to do? But I think there is still this attitude among most banks that when you sit down with them and you explain to them why this is very low risk, they get it, but they're, they're generally so conservative that they feel like, why should I take any risk? My business is fine. I'll wait till it's more clear or legalized. Plus, I don't want to do all this work of due diligence and monitoring, even though they learn that you can outsource it or if you build a team to do it, you'll be more than compensated by the fees you're going to get. And that's why some banks are happily doing it. But the major banks are saying, let me know when it's legal and then, then I'll jump in. How do you think about winners and losers in this space? Do you stratify it in any kind of way? Well, I always say that there are going to be winners and losers in, in federal legalization. And some of the losers are going to be people who are winning now. If a bank is building a big cannabis practice, what's going to happen when Bank of America and JP Morgan and everybody else is, is competing with them for that business? it's going to be challenging and it's going to be difficult. So I would say to banks that are in it now, get ready for the fact that this may not be a long-term gig for you because you're going to find competition with all the services and other things that major banks can offer. And that may or may not be something you're able to overcome. We're seeing, for example, there are companies, great company called Weed Maps. Weed Maps is kind of the Yelp of dispensaries, right? Among other things, but that's their, was their main business. And they survive because Yelp won't take lists of cannabis companies. Well, what's going to happen when they do? Well, they say, well, we'll sell to them, you know, which may work. But that business as it is, is going to suddenly find a lot of competition if they don't sell to them. I also look at people who say, okay, I've got one or two dispensaries somewhere. Okay, what are you going to do when big alcohol, big tobacco, big pharma are all in competing with that? I always liken it to when kind of Lowe's and the big box hardware stores came in in the 1980s and crushed these decades old, long-standing, family-owned, local hardware stores that had been there forever. And they did it because they had greater service, greater selection, better prices, and 
these little guys couldn't compete. Now, some of them survived by learning how to provide extra service or something else that was unique or personal or, as we like to say, craft brands, that sort of thing. And that's what is going to ultimately develop, I think. Excellent. Um, I think the one question that for a, a wider audience, people always want to know about when you talk about banking is how many people have to accept cash? I'm always asked, does FTI accept cash? And I would say, no, that's kind of an urban myth at this point. Would you agree? If you have your own bank account and somebody pays you in cash and it's over 10000 it has to get reported and it's a whole process and you can't play the game where you say, I'm going to just deposit 9000 and then 9000 they will nail you for that. They'll spot it right away. And that's arguably evading the law and so on. You know, our law firm and advisory firm, we don't like to take cash. Uh, I haven't had to yet. If it were a small amount, maybe a couple of thousand dollars, I might. But no, that's mostly gone away. But some companies are still operating heavily in cash. They're paying their taxes in cash, which gets pretty complicated because, you know, when you pay your taxes in cash, they actually charge you a 10% penalty for doing so. And when, when Mnuchin was Treasury Secretary and he was begging Congress to try to change this and pass safe banking or something, he said, we've had to open a cash room in the Treasury Department just for all this cash coming from cannabis companies. And we don't want that. And we don't like that. Can you guys please fix this? And of course, there's security issues. And there have been efforts to try to do crypto and other things. And they just haven't really worked. haven't kicked in. Well, I mean, as compliance professionals, I totally agree with you that trying to skirt the $10,000 rule is things that people can try. But everybody now is so sophisticated that, you know, we look for it. So that's part of what we look for. But I should make clear that it's not illegal to deposit more than $10,000 no. in cash. Cash is fine. You're allowed to use cash. They just worry about whether it's money laundering and so on. So there's more reporting and scrutiny of you when you deposit uh, more than 10000 in cash. Exactly. I think the other question or the other issue that people don't think about is that if you talk about the legal cannabis market, you have to then think about the illicit market or the legacy market, however you choose to refer to it. And I think that the whole question of banking plays into that as well, is if you really are serious about cleaning up the illicit or market, that banking has to be a, a key foundation to that. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, the illicit market, of course, they don't pay taxes. They don't have to worry about compliance or anything. And they generally either don't have bank accounts or they have some kind of front company that owns a little deli or something, and that's where they launder their money, literally. And that's a crime, all of it, and it's something we want to eliminate as much as we can. We'll never eliminate it entirely, even if you look at, you know, there's a black market in cigarettes. If something's heavily taxed, there's going to be people trying to sell it to you below that. It is one of the biggest challenges in every state that's legalized, is how do I offer an alternative that people prefer to like here in New York City, where, where everyone seems to have a guy who they call and he comes to their apartment and delivers whatever they want. Why would you get rid of that? And there are a lot of good reasons to get rid of that, as we know, besides that it's just illegal, is that the quality tends to be a little more inconsistent and you worry about things like that. It's a real challenge and we have to make sure that legitimate operators are focusing more on quality and testing and consistency and reliability, even though it's going to cost you a little bit more. So David, on the show, Finest on Leadership, as many of my listeners know, 
I always emphasize the fact that I believe that leaders are readers. So curious about, are there any recent books that you've read or that you gift often to people? What recommendations do you have for our listeners? I'm not a big fan of business books, even though I've written four of them, because, you know, who moved my cheese and all this kind of stuff. I think it's often more for early beginner type folks. For me, I just finished reading Elton John's autobiography, which was actually a wonderful story of his life, unabashed and not holding back in any way, all his issues and troubles and drugs and this and that. But it can be, there can be lessons learned from things like that because seeking fame and fortune doesn't yield happiness. It certainly didn't in his case. And what matters? What matters in life? What do we care about? And what, what most of us in this industry care about is helping the world. And for me, it's, it was always three things that drove me to stay around here. One was that this is medicine, medicine that should be more available to people. Number two, we need to reverse the damage that the war on drugs did to our society, particularly people of color. And third, I'm kind of a bit of a libertarian, and I think you should be able to do to or with your own body you know, whatever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And that's what's driven me to want to be uh, very involved with this world. Well, I really appreciate that, especially the suggestion for Elton John, because it doesn't have to be a business book. I'm actually right now in the middle of reading Viola Davis's book called Finding Me. Just started it and it's amazing. So thank you for, for sharing that. Elaine, I'm curious about you. I mean, do you have any uh, book recommendations at all? That's a good question. What have I read lately? I, from my prior life as a journalist, I tend to be a little bit of a political geek. So I have probably shamefully been read all the books about the Trump administration and what people have been doing. And now I'm delving in back to my other roots because for a while I was stationed in Moscow as a correspondent. So I'm kind of uh, reading anything and everything about Putin, mostly his own book about his boyhood, etc., which is revealing in a way that I don't think he expected it to be revealing, even though you know it's a highly glossy version with all of the uh, warts airbrushed out. But it still gives you great insight into what a twisted person he is. And David, you kind of touched on this a little bit, because I, I also like to ask, what are you passionate about? It, it could be personal or professional. And I think going through, you know, the three items that you mentioned earlier about being medicine and reversing the damage of war and drugs and being a libertarian are things that are clearly front and center in terms of things that you're passionate about. Is there anything else you want to mention? Well, I always love to talk about uh, my offspring, my son, who is a Broadway star. He was the star of Dear Evan Hansen through all of 2019, so he's uh, now in college. But I mention it only because since he, I was a young child, I had a passion for theater and music and all of that. But I have no acting talent, no musical talent, even though my mom was a child prodigy on the piano and everything. My creative talent went more into kind of writing, which I do enjoy doing. Uh, but my son got the talent, the musical talent, and he's incredible. But to be able to love the arts and music and, and, and theater is a wonderful balanced creator in life. David, is there anything that I have not covered that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, the other thing that's coming up and we're focusing a lot on is psychedelics, which is completely different from cannabis, but also not. There's a fair amount of overlap, but it's a completely different kind of thing. It's more about legalization trend, 
similar to cannabis, although it's slower. But there's also this whole therapeutic side where people are looking to basically do biotechnology and do clinical trials on new drugs that will be, these will be fully federally legal doctor prescribed medicines and focus mostly on mental illness. And there really has not been any major new therapeutic and mental illness for the last 30 years. And if you meet anyone who suffers from depression or things like that, they all say the same thing, nothing really works. And so the opportunity for these entheogenic plants to really make a difference in people's lives, like they used to before they were made illegal 100 years ago, I think is also very exciting. Excellent. Well, David, thank you for joining us on the show. And Elaine, thank you for being my first co-host on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.